Well, as always, I'd like to help uh, thank the uh, Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support is a great help in making these lectures possible. And tonight we have a co-sponsor, a special co-sponsor for this lecture. Uh, if you were here a couple of weeks ago when Ed Ayers spoke to us, you'll know that this lecture um, and that one were co-sponsored by the Richmond National Battlefield Park and the American Civil War Center as part of their ongoing commemoration of the 150th anniversary of the fighting that took place around Richmond in the summer of 1862. And as you know also, from time to time, I share the introduction duties for these lectures with other people. And tonight, I will say, this is the first time I have had the pleasure of doing this with my tennis doubles partner. So um, please join me in welcoming to the stage Dave Roth, superintendent of the Richmond National Battlefield Park, and the Tony Roach to my John Newcomb. So Dave, would you come on up, please? <laughs> We put our arch enemies out of business with an injury, so we're anxious to get back on the courts here in a couple weeks. But thank you, Paul. And uh, thank the Virginia Historical Society and the American Civil War Center, who are incredible partners. And we certainly appreciate your willingness to host uh, this special evening's presentation. Um, as I look around, overflow crowd. And if we include tonight's attendance, almost 8,000 people participated in the National Park Service's 1862 commemorative events that started way back on May 11th at Drury's Bluff. An incredible participation. And I want to thank all of you for being, for being part of that. And I got to take a moment and say, as superintendent of the park, I can't be more proud of a staff, some of which are here tonight in uniform and some in civilians who worked hard for, for nearly 60 days to put on those events, uh, despite the incredible heat and the storms that uh, nearly tried to wipe us out twice. But this evening, we conclude our commemorative observations of the 150 anniversaries of the Seven Days Battles with a tremendous exclamation point. For years, the staff at Richmond National Battlefield Park has maintained that the 1862 campaign around Richmond was a critically important episode in the course of the Civil War. Now, I'm happy to say that we have an impartial ally, a nationally famous Civil War historian with unimpeachable credentials to join us. And tonight, we're all fortunate to have the opportunity to hear Dr. Gary Gallagher uh, talk about uh, the seven days. I met Gary in 1983 when we participated in a conference about Chancellorsville. At that time, he was editing the papers of E. Porter Alexander, which was published soon after. And I got to say that if you have a bookshelf at home of only 25 Civil War books, Alexander's memoirs, which are entitled Fighting for the Confederacy, must be one of them. The narrative is as engaging as an historical novel, but stands as one of the most detailed and accurate wartime journals ever published. And Gary's editing job is also a model for others wishing to master that art. Currently, Gary is the John L. Now Professor in the History of American Civil War at the University of Virginia. He is the author and editor of more than 30 books on the Civil War, including The Union War, published in 2011, and a must-read for anyone interested in current discussions about what the war was all about. Other especially uh, notable Gallagher titles include Causes One, Lost and Forgotten, How Hollywood and Popular Art Shape What We Know About the Civil War, another great one, The Confederate War, and Lee and Generals in the War and Memory. He also has edited and issued more than a dozen separate campaign studies, each of which consists of volumes of essays on critical campaigns in the East. In light of this evening's topic, it is worth noting that those edited works include both the Seven Days Campaign around Richmond and the multiple volumes on Gettysburg. My good friends out in the Western campaigns keep asking me, when's Gary going to be working about stories of the campaigns out West? And I have two responses. The first one is, you ask Gary, but the second one is never, I hope, because we keep, need to keep Gary focused on what's really important here in the East. Um, <laughs> My friends in Shiloh and uh, Vicksburg know I'm just kidding, uh, mostly. Um, <laughs> uh, 
back in the 1980s, Gary was, um, oh, and I, I need to go back just for a moment here. These days, so it seems, most academic historians are not all that interested in Civil War battlefields, unfortunately. So we're extremely fortunate to have several in Virginia who do care, including Ed Ayers, who spoke to us on June 19th, and now Gary tonight. Both of those scholars have an appreciation for the importance of the military story and the value of preserving these special places. Back in the 1980s, Gary was the first president of the Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites, an organization that has evolved into the fabulously successful Civil War Trust, responsible for preserving so much important battlefield ground uh, across the country. He has addressed audiences in Richmond, on countless occasions over the years and is a staunch friend of both the Historical Society here and the various national parks. Tonight, Dr. Gallagher's talk has the intriguing title, More Important Than Gettysburg, The Seven Days Campaign as a Turning Point. I have long awaited this evening for many reasons, and now it's my honored privilege to welcome Gary to the podium. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> I learned a couple of things as I sat there and, and listened to the introductions. One is, uh, if you detect something you don't think is right, uh, you make your feelings apparent immediately. <laughs> and the other one is that Dave sometimes doesn't tell the truth when he's talking about friends at other battlefield sites in the West. <laughs> the West. <laughs> I think everybody in this room knows the popular narrative of how the fearsome bloodletting in Adams County, Pennsylvania on the first three days of July in 1863 changed the trajectory of the Civil War. Before the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac collided at Gettysburg, victory still seemed possible for the Confederacy. But after Lee's retreat, it was only a matter of time before United States arms would vanquish their opponents and restore the Republic. As Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain of the 20th Maine Infantry states in Michael Shara's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Killer Angels, and also in Ron Maxwell's cinematic version of the book titled Gettysburg, uh, the, outcome of, the outcome of the war hangs in the balance as the two armies march uh, toward their date with destiny. If we lose this fight, observes a determined Chamberlain just before the battle, we lose the war. Ken Burns obviously agreed, devoting 45 minutes to Gettysburg in his documentary, The Civil War, far more attention than to any other battle or campaign. The May 2012 issue of National Geographic also embraces this conception of the war, including in the magazine a beautiful map titled 1863, Turning Point of the Civil War the text for which explains, in case the title doesn't get the message across to particularly dim-witted readers, that, quote, <laughs> the Union began to gain the upper hand only in July 1863 with its victory at Gettysburg, the largest battle ever fought in North America. I spent uh, a week, a very profitable and fun week with a group of teachers from across the United States a couple of weeks ago who come to Charlottesville every summer, different teachers, to talk about the Civil War. Several of them told me that in their state standards of learning, there's actually a question. What was the turning point of the Civil War? And in each instance, the correct answer is Gettysburg. All this sounds so compelling, so reasonable. Gettysburg was the biggest and bloodiest battle the one that marked the end of Lee's last foray into the United States, the occasion for Abraham Lincoln to pronounce his justly celebrated benediction over the Union dead in November 1863, the most popular National Park Service site related to the Civil War, the battle most former Confederates pronounced to be the turning point of the war, the place where James Longstreet reached nadir of his perfidy, uh, in undoing the Confederacy, that evil, evil, <laughs> South Carolina-born, Georgia-associated, hulking guy. <laughs> but here's the key question all of you should consider. What really changed as a result of the Battle of Gettysburg? And here's the answer. Nothing. <laughs> 
nothing. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln and Robert E. Lee understood this. In his letter to George G. Meade, dated July 14, 1863, but never sent, as most of you, I'm sure, know, Lincoln predicted that the failure to follow up on the victory of July 1st to 3rd meant, quote, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. Did Abraham Lincoln think Gettysburg was the great turning point? No, he thought Gettysburg was a great lost opportunity for the Army, the Potomac, and the United States. Lee accepted Gettysburg as a defeat. Clearly, he couldn't accept it as anything else. He wasn't delusional. Uh, so he accepted it as a defeat, but he also reckoned that the logistical outcome of the campaign had been very good from a Confederate perspective. As for the longer-term impact, he argued that the heavy losses at Gettysburg did not exceed, quote, what it would have been from the series of battles I would have been compelled to fight had I remained in Virginia. And he added, quote, we did whip them at Gettysburg, and it will be seen for the next six months that that army is as quiet as a sucking dove. He said that in July of 1863. The next major battle here in the Eastern Theater, as all of you know, did not come six months later. It came 10 months later. When U.S. Grant was on the scene, and the two armies collided in Saunders Field along the turnpike to open the Battle of the Wilderness. If you in this Richmond audience want to consider a real turning point of the war, you need to look closer to home, uh, which is what we're going to do for the rest of tonight. The 1862 Richmond campaign exerted immense influence on the course of the Civil War. In the short term, its consequences reverberated through the armies, that had maneuvered and fought up Virginia's peninsula to the Confederate capital, as well as affecting the morale and expectations of untold thousands of civilians who followed the action from behind the lines. <clears throat> In the broader sweep of the conflict, George B. McClellan's failure and Robert E. Lee's emergence as a successful field commander marked a decisive moment in the Eastern theater that in turn profoundly shaped the larger direction of the conflict. A seemingly irresistible tide of Union military success between February and June 1862 receded rapidly after the seven days, opening the way for a stunning reorientation of the strategic picture in Virginia. In early June, the strategic picture has the largest army of the United States within five miles of where we are right now, essentially, within five miles. Three months later, the frontier is the Potomac River, where it had been in the very first spring of the war. It's an absolutely mind-boggling change in the strategic situation. Lee stood with the Army of Northern Virginia on the banks of the Potomac, having won a second victory at Second Bull Run, that built on his success here in the Seven Days, and he stood poised for the first time to cross the national frontier into the United States. This reversal of fortune canceled earlier projections of victory within a framework that might have restored the Union much as it was on the eve of the Civil War, but because their premier army had been humbled by the rebels outside Richmond, political and military leaders in the United States had to confront the prospect of pursuing a harsher kind of war to defeat the Confederacy. Early in the war, Lincoln had said that he didn't want the conflict to turn into a remorseless revolutionary struggle. He wanted to avoid that. A year later, he knows he can't avoid that. People on both sides know that the war is going to take on a different character because it had become something no one could have imagined in the spring and summer of 1861. This new kind of war would bring the end of slavery and otherwise change the nature of society in a restored United States. People in the United States knew that. Confederates, meanwhile, took heart at what they perceived to be a tremendous change in their possible success in establishing their new republic. The seven days by itself accomplished that. I'll use seven days as a singular sometimes and sometimes as a plural just to keep you on your toes. <laughs> Anyone seeking to understand the 1862 Richmond campaign must take into account a number of factors, some of which often are missing 
from studies of Civil War campaigns and battles. There's this tendency in, in the Civil War world, as all of you know, to either be interested in the non-military side of it or to be in the military side of it. And for most people who read what are dismissed as popular works by people in my world, the military side is what really counts. For people in my world, the academic world, military things are of almost no interest. They're interested in everything but military affairs during the Civil War. So you have these sort of parallel universes of Civil War studies with almost no bridges connecting them. And of course, that is a very unfortunate state of affairs because you cannot possibly understand the Civil War if you don't bring those two spheres into active and continual conversation. If you just immerse yourself in one or the other, you can have a wonderful time, just won't know anything really about the Civil War. <coughs> and you can live a full life not knowing anything about the Civil War. I'm living a full life not knowing about so many things, I'm not even sure what they all are. But you can do that, you can do it, if, you, if it's, it's an act of will on your part, I think I don't really want to understand the Civil War, hand me another campaign study. Or, I don't really want to understand the Civil War, give me ten books, but I don't want armies or gunpowder in any of them. You can go either way, God bless you. <laughs> Civil War armies represented extensions of two democratic societies, and they operated within a complicated web of military, political, and social constraints. Although the Confederacy lacked the resources and manpower to defeat the United States in an absolute sense, <clears throat> it could prevail if the loyal citizenry of the United States decided the war was not worth continuing, that it was simply too expensive. The idea that the Confederacy never could have won was fighting a hopeless fight against impossible odds, that simply isn't true. That is a post-war concoction. It is not the way people thought during the war. It somehow made people after the war feel better in some ways, but we have to get that out of our minds. That's one of the first things we have to get out of our minds if we're trying to understand the American Civil War. The Confederacy had a much better chance of winning its independence than the colonies did in the mid-1770s. If there had been a Las Vegas in 1776 and in 1861, the odds against Confederate victory would have been much better than the odds against colonial victory. We would have put our bet on the Confederacy far sooner than we would have put a bet on the colonies. Either side could win. The United States, conversely, could win if the Confederate people proved unwilling to sacrifice any longer to achieve independence. The civilian populations are the key. That's always the way it is in our society and under our form of government. And both of these nations, and they're both nations, operated under the same political structure. When the civilian population has decided it's not going to fight a war anymore, the war ends. And so the key is everybody operating with at least a 40-watt bulb understood during the Civil War, and that would include Lincoln and Davis and Grant and Lee. They understood that the civilians were the most important factor at play in the war, and they understood how powerfully what their armies did influenced attitudes among the civilian populations, and that is certainly the case here. The home fronts felt the impact of battles not only in terms of loved ones killed and maimed, but also in the realm of political and social policy, and popular will in both societies fluctuated markedly in response to events at the military front. The most important operations such as the 1862 Richmond campaign, cast shadows far beyond the time uh, when armies marched away from the actual battlefields. A full appreciation of the Richmond campaign requires attention to four key questions, I think. Number one, how did it figure in the entire tapestry of war during the first six and a half months of 1862? Second, what were expectations behind the lines going into the campaign? Third, how did Union and Confederate morale change as a result of the campaign? And four, was the conflict significantly different because of what happened on the peninsula and at Richmond during the spring and early summer of 1862? And I'll start by a quick look at the broader tapestry of the war in 1862. The military situation in those months followed a script decidedly favorable to the United States. Out in the West, it is a parade of disasters for the Confederacy, as all of you know. 
Fort Henry and Donaldson fell in February. Nashville fell in March. Shiloh, a major defeat for the Confederates in early April. The largest city of the Confederacy gone by the end of April, New Orleans. And when New Orleans fell, the Mississippi ceases to be a Confederate river. I've never understood the attention either during the war or since on Vicksburg as the great moment in the fighting for the Mississippi River. It's over at the end of April 1862 as far as the Confederacy having any real use of the Mississippi River. Nothing can go out, nothing can come in. As a Confederate river, it doesn't even last <clears throat> 13 months uh, once the shooting starts. That's a catastrophic loss for the Confederacy. Memphis was gone in early June. There was a 100,000-man United States Army in Corinth, Mississippi by the end of May. Corinth, Mississippi, that great rail junction for a principal east-west and north-south railroad in the Western Confederacy. Farther west, southern Missouri made safe by the Battle of Pea Ridge in northwestern Arkansas. Even farther west, the closest battlefield to where I grew up in southern Colorado, Glorietta Pass turned back the little quixotic Confederate effort to make some headway uh, toward Santa Fe and Colorado. Everywhere in the West is defeat, retreat, and loss for the Confederacy. Here in the East, the only problem was, as I said, the largest army of the Republic was within five miles of the Confederate capital. And as the armies made their way here, something that the Confederate people really held on to, to a degree I think we don't appreciate anymore, and that is the CSS Virginia had been scuttled in March. No good news in the East either, except for one little bit coming from the Shenandoah Valley. The only bit of good news in this season of failure for the Confederacy, <clears throat> it was consequential, but had Richmond fallen, Jackson's Valley campaign would be an insignificant footnote in Civil War history, utterly beside the point, of no value or importance whatsoever in the broader sweep of the war. It looms as large as it does because of when it came. It's the only thing the Confederate people have to hang on to <clears throat> in the midst of all, <clears throat> excuse me, of this bad news. One last point about the military situation in early 1862 bears mention, and uh, I, can, I can thank Dave Ruth for already bringing it up, and that is that operations in the Eastern Theater loomed larger than operations in the Western Theater. This breaks the heart of lots of people. Uh, they like to blame Douglas Southall Freeman for this. Damn that Douglas Southall Freeman. If he only hadn't written books that so many people read, we wouldn't think Lee and his army were so important. Oh. It's really the West where everything happens. The West is where it happens. The East is just sort of a holding action. Okay. It's a holding action uh, that everybody thinks is the most important thing going on in the war. So I guess it's all in how we define it. People in Paris and London looked at the Civil War landscape. It's like New Yorkers looking at a map of the United States. Everything's distinct till you get to the Hudson, and then it's just sort of indistinct. <clears throat> but there's something in the distance, and we think that's Los Angeles. <laughs> The way that Europe looked at the American Civil War is everything's distinct till you hit the Alleghenies and then it's indistinct. Uh, New Orleans is down there, but the rest of it is just sort of a big, gray, indistinct, uh, who cares and who knows what's going on there. That's just the way it was. Whether we like it or not, that's the way it was. And I like it, but some people don't. <laughs> I think they just need to come to terms with it. <laughs> and worry about something else. What are the expectations behind the lines? People in the United States expected success from the Army of the Potomac in the summer, early summer of 1862. That attitude derived from the many triumphs on battlefields from New Mexico to the Atlantic coast, the cumulative effect of which prompted newspapers to indulge in lavishly optimistic projections about McClellan's prospects for a decisive victory. Editors across the loyal states claimed that Confederate morale had plummeted as when a New York Times headline described, quote, a panic throughout the South in late April. Sentiment in the Confederacy, as you might imagine, contrasted sharply with that in the United States. Every Union military success had bred a Southern failure, promoting war weariness and an almost frantic need for victories to raise civilian morale. Shortages of food, territory loss to federal invaders, and stringent governmental actions added to a gloomy situation. By far the most important and divisive national legislation was the Confederate Conscription Act 
passed on April 16, 1862. Debate about conscription raged as McClellan inched inexorably toward Richmond. It's hard to overstate how important conscription was in the Confederacy. In the long term, it kept Confederate armies in the field. In the short term, it was unbelievably divisive. The biggest spike of desertion for the whole war until the very end comes right in the wake of the Conscription Act of 1862 because it not only said everybody not in uniform of military age was now subject to being drafted, it also said that the more than 200,000 men who had enlisted in good faith for one year in the first spring of the war were now retained in service for two more years and they believed that the government had broken faith with them, that in effect they had had a contract with the government and the government broke the contract. This was considered a powerful intrusion of governmental power into individual liberties and freedom in the Confederacy. Uh, one of the ironies of the war, one of the many ironies of the war is that the most oppressive central government in the war by far was the Confederate government. It did everything the US government did, did it sooner usually, but went far beyond where the Lincoln government went. Uh, what this allegedly state rights society went along with this incredibly powerful central government because it was necessary to keep a gigantic war going. Confederate populace yearned for victories, especially offensive ones delivered by generals who took the initiative rather than merely countering United States movements. The absence of an army commander around whom the Confederate people could rally deepened the crisis as we moved through this period. The first year of the war had seen four soldiers <coughs> rise above all their peers in the Confederacy. Gustav Touton Beauregard, whose name I love to say, uh, the hero of Sumter and co-victor at First Manassas, was one of the four. Joseph Eggleston Johnston, who shared the laurels of Manassas and led the primary army in Virginia, was the second. Albert Sidney Johnston, who was Jefferson Davis's favorite and directed affairs in the massive Western theater, was the third. And Robert E. Lee, who brought, his brought to his Confederate service an impressive revolutionary heritage and a reputation as Winfield Scott's favorite soldier, was the fourth. Winfield Scott, of course, is the man in terms of military figures in the mid-19th century United States. He towers figuratively and literally above almost all the other soldiers. He's one of the five greatest soldiers in United States history by any measure. The fact that he said Lee was the best soldier in the United States Army carried tremendous weight. By the time of the Seven Days, however, Sidney Johnston lay dead of wounds at Shiloh. Beauregard had fallen out of favor <coughs> with Jefferson Davis and gone into temporary exile after the fall of Corinth. That's in the Western Theater in Virginia. Joe Johnston had retreated so often that many had come to question his abilities even before he suffered his disabling wound on May 31st at Seven Pines. He loved to retreat, as you know. He just loved it. It was something he was born to do, and he did it so well. <laughs> It's Thursday. What a wonderful day to retreat. <laughs> Robert E. Lee stepped into Johnston's position with his public image much diminished because of controversial service in Western Virginia and along the South Atlantic coast in 1861 and early 1862. Lacking an untainted general commanding a major army, Confederates made Stonewall Jackson their paramount military idol primarily, of course, because of his Valley Campaign. He had the great nickname coming out of First Manassas. That helps. A nickname can mean everything. Stonewall Jackson, Granny Holmes. Those are two nicknames. Uh, it's easy to pick which one we would have. <laughs> Unless maybe you're descended from Theophilus Holmes. But otherwise, you'd probably go for Stonewall. Jackson had seized headlines by leading his demi-army in the Shenandoah Valley to victory in five small battles that all put together don't make up one medium-sized Civil War battle. But it's timing, it is timing that's so critical in the Valley. Jackson's elevation tells us a great deal. It's a clear indication of the poverty of Confederate heroes at the top echelon of command. Your principal hero is not even an army commander not even an army commander. That means you are lacking 
something at the Army level. But Lee, rather than Stonewall Jackson, would coordinate the defense of Richmond in June. Many civilians and soldiers who hungered for aggressive action doubted that Lee was up to the task. You all know this very well. They thought he'd perform timidly in Western Virginia during the autumn of 1861 and deplored what they saw as his penchant for digging in while in Charleston during the winter of 1861-62. A North Carolinian who later would become a fanatical admirer of Lee sounded a skeptical note upon learning that he had replaced Joe Johnston. According to this woman, Lee had acquired a pejorative sobriquet even before his assignments in the fall and winter of 1861-62. His nickname last summer, she wrote, was Old Stick in the Mud. <laughs> There's mud enough now in and about our lines. Pray God he may not fulfill the whole of his name. Uh, the Lee that we think of, the Lee that is in the mural gallery, the wonderful mural gallery with the scaffolding in there, the part that's going to be fantastic to see the Hofbauer murals uh, refurbished and rededicated. I can't wait for that. But that Robert E. Lee is not the Robert E. Lee that people read about in their newspapers in early June 1862. The Lee they read about in, Ju in June of 62 is one who was not by any means a certain thing in the minds of most Confederates. Now, this brief summary of events and opinion during the first half of 62 indicates how much was at stake as the armies prepared to come to grips in what we call the Seven Days Battles, the climactic battles outside Richmond. Flushed with military success, the Union populace confidently expected McClellan to deliver a crowning triumph that would crush the rebellion. Confederates struggled to maintain hope in the midst of economic hardship, turmoil over the draft, a relentless drumbeat of failure on the battlefield, and the absence of an army commander in whom they could invest their hopes. The seven days dramatically altered the military and non-military elements of this picture. And although we don't have time for a detailed review, uh, just a few observations will highlight this impact on the armies and the home fronts. And I'll start with the Army of the Potomac. It's a good place to begin to assess the Richmond campaign's ramifications. George B. McClellan's reputation suffered among those officers and men in his army who believed he had retreated unnecessarily, given up favorable ground after repelling Lee's attacks at Malvern Hill, and fumbled a brilliant opportunity to capture the enemy's capital. Months of hard work spent pressing the rebels toward Richmond's defenses had come to nothing when the powerful Union host withdrew to Harrison's Landing and hunkered down, turtle-like, along the banks of the James. Mixing sarcasm with disgust, a junior officer in the engineers noted how some of McClellan's admirers, quote, deify a general whose greatest feat has been a masterly retreat. He underlined masterly, just masterly. I'm sure Joe Johnston appreciated it. <laughs> Far more numerous were soldiers whose disappointment at not taking Richmond failed to undermine their morale or confidence in McClellan. McClellan remained, you all know this, he remained the most popular commander of the Army of the Potomac had throughout the war, throughout the war. It's an absolutely fascinating story, the bond between McClellan and his men. Articulating a common sentiment, a private in the 15th Massachusetts credited rebel generals with movements that compelled McClellan to retreat from the Chickahominy to the James, adding that the withdrawal, quote, was one of the most brilliant achievements of the war. <laughs> General, you retreat brilliantly. May I have your autograph? <laughs> Many Union soldiers believed their government had failed to provide the men and material necessary for victory. Frederick Law Olmsted, uh, the great landscape architect who at this point in his life was director of the U.S. Sanitary Commission, conversed with officers and enlisted men at Harrison's Landing immediately after the seven days. He concluded that the Army believed it had fought well against a superior foe and only needed reinforcements to go after the rebels again. It's like he's channeling uh, McClellan here. Quote, without these, he observed pessimistically, the best army the world ever saw must be idle and in discouragement and dejection be wasted by disease. The Richmond campaign exacerbated the already poisonous distrust between Democratic generals in the Army of the Potomac and Republicans in Washington. 
Radical Republican Senator Zachariah Chandler of Michigan, a member of the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, attacked McClellan unsparingly in the committee and on the floor of the Senate. Privately, Chandler called McClellan, quote, an imbecile, if not a traitor, who has virtually lost the Army of the Potomac. Lincoln himself journeyed to Harrison's Landing on July 8th and 9th for a visit to Army headquarters. What he saw on the James did not encourage him. McClellan had prepared a confidential letter for Lincoln, dated July 7th and later known as the Harrison's Landing Letter, which called for continuance of a restrained form of warfare against the Confederacy. Quote, neither confiscation of property or favorable abolition of slavery, insisted McClellan, should be contemplated for a moment. As historian David Donald has aptly described, the great Lincoln scholar, the president's reaction to Little Mac's suggestion was basically that policy had been pursued for over a year, it has failed, it's time to move on. Lincoln thus moved closer to the abolitionists and radical Republicans who had demanded seizure of slaves and other property belonging to rebels. Later in July, deeply affected by the outcome of the seven days, deeply affected by the outcome of the seven days, Lincoln would inform his cabinet that he intended to issue a proclamation of emancipation. Here's where the key decision is made. It's not Antietam that is critical to Lincoln's decision for emancipation. It's the seven days. Antietam is critical in terms of the timing for its issuance, the preliminary version of it. But the decision to issue it at all is a result of the seven days, not of Antietam. Congress, meanwhile, put the finishing touches on the Second Confiscation Act, a measure designed to free all slaves in the Confederacy held by rebels. Senator Charles Sumner, the radical Republican from Massachusetts, explicitly tied passage of this act, which passed on July 17th, to the Union military failure here in Richmond. Quote, the Bill of Confiscation and Liberation, which was at last passed under pressure from our reverses in Richmond, wrote Sumner in August 1862, is a practical act of emancipation. Lincoln and Congress are moving, and of course Lincoln is aware that Congress is moving, and Lincoln wants to control the issue too. That's part of what the timing is going, uh, that's part of the timing here. But the critical element in the timing is the seven days. It's the seven days. Had McClellan been the victor in July 1862, he certainly could have pressed his case for a softer policy more effectively. The consequences for millions of enslaved African Americans would have been momentous had that been the case. Most civilians in the United States understood that the campaign had failed, though a few of them, excuse me, though a few of them believed it presaged Confederate independence. Overall, they began to confront the very unpleasant fact that enormous sacrifice and loss would likely be necessary to win a war that had become a kind of war that none of them had envisioned in 1861 or even <clears throat> very early in 1862. McClellan's retreat hit especially hard because hopes had been so high. That's why it's important to understand how high hopes were on the Union side and how low hopes were on the Confederate side if we really want to understand the impact of the seven days. Those high hopes greatly exacerbated the situation for Abraham Lincoln. New Yorker George Templeton Strong, who was a staunch Republican and one of the great diarists uh, of the Civil War era. If you haven't looked at his diary, you should. It's a really wonderful four thick volumes of his diary, one of which, the longest of which deals with the Civil War. Strong concluded on the night of July 3rd, 1862, that McClellan, quote, had been beat back by a superior force, but not destroyed. The enemy was superior because we have been General. Now, he didn't put superior in quotation marks, but I think Strong was being a little sarcastic there as well, like the engineer that I quoted earlier. A superior force, superior only because McClellan had been outgeneraled. Democrats tended to blame the Lincoln administration and Congress rather than McClellan, stressing that the army should have been reinforced before the final battles around Richmond. And the press was very vitriolic then, as you know. You wouldn't know it now because we, I mean, you probably might. 
Uh, many Americans don't because they watch the 24-hour news channels, which make it sound like nothing's ever happened before in history. So whatever's happening now is the worst. <laughs> There's never been anything like this before. Never been anything like this before. Economically, never anything like this. Immigration, we've never been as concerned as we are about it now. Really? Really? I guess not. If your historical memory goes back to Tuesday, uh, that might be true. <clears throat> If it goes back farther than that, you might stumble upon examples of things that were so much worse than they are now in almost every way that it would give more confidence in the fact that we might muddle through uh, as a nation. But never mind. The point is newspapers really went after the other side. Then they also flew their colors honestly. I'm a Democratic paper. If you're a Democrat, read me. If you're a Republican, I hate your guts. Hope you burn in hell. Let's get that straight. <laughs> in the realm of foreign affairs, the Richmond campaign carried far more clout with French and British observers than any of the Union successes out West. In fact, more clout than all of the Union successes out West combined. On August 4th, Lincoln answered a French diplomat who had suggested that the Confederacy was winning the war. The president betrayed great frustration at the importance given events in Virginia compared to those farther west. It seems unreasonable, wrote the president, that a series of successes extending through half a year and clearing more than 100,000 square miles of country should help us so little while a single half defeat should hurt us so much. There is wonderful evidence regarding which theater was more important. It's the East. Lincoln didn't like it. He's a Western man. He's a Western man whose Western armies are winning. And he's frustrated because London and Paris can't seem to figure that out. The half defeat of McClellan, as Lincoln put it, at Richmond had a profound effect on the Confederacy's war for nationhood. Lee's debut as a field commander marked the most important watershed in the development of the army in Northern Virginia, which is by far the most important army in the Confederacy. Despite a butcher's bill of more than 20,000 casualties, compared to about 16,000 for McClellan's army, and however marred by tactical lapses, of which there were many on the Confederate side during the seven days, Lee's victory here at Richmond thrust him into the limelight as the Confederacy's only post-Manassas army commander with a major victory to his credit. The only one since first Bull Run. That status helped solidify his hold on the field command he had long wished to exercise. Here's another example of how we should never read backward from the end of the story to understand what's going on. Don't ever assume that Robert E. Lee was fated to command the army in Northern Virginia for the rest of the war. Don't do that. Johnston thought he would come back into command when his wounds healed. He certainly wanted to. He expected to. Many in the Confederacy expected him to. It's what happened after the seven days that kept Robert E. Lee in command. But no one at the time knew that he was going to stay in command. The seven days were a very good start toward his accomplishing that. Lee's leadership in June and July began an 11-month process by which he would mold his army into a finely tuned instrument that won notable victories, some of the most famous victories in American history. Rapidly became the most important national institution in the Confederacy and helped sustain morale in the face of mounting odds and hardships on the home front. For the rest of the war, the trajectory for the importance of the Army of Northern Virginia is steadily up. The trajectories for morale in the North, in the South, or more properly in the United States and in the Confederacy, they go like this. The importance of Lee's Army, it's a straight line upward, more important in June than in May, more important in 1863 than 62, more important in 64 than 63. You get the point. <laughs> the seven days began that fellow citizens began to compare Lee to George Washington, who of course was Lee's own model of a man and a leader, his absolute model. He emulated Washington, deliberately emulated him, self-consciously emulated him in many ways, as all of you know. The comparison was apt because Lee and his army would come to function, and I know many of you have heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again. He and his army came to function precisely as 
Washington and the Continental Army had functioned during the American Revolution. They are the great national rallying point. They are the institution to which people look to decide whether there's still a chance to win the war. Where's the Continental Congress? I don't know. It used to be in Philadelphia. It's in York or someplace now. That doesn't matter. Where's the Continental Army? That's what matters. It's, is it still in existence? What about Jefferson Davis? What about him? Robert E. Lee is more important than Jefferson Davis by the midpoint of the war. And the Army in Northern Virginia is more important than the Confederate Congress as a national institution that functions as a rallying point. That begins in the battles outside Richmond in 1862. Beginning with the seven days, Lee would shoulder an increasing share of the burden of sustaining morale among his nation's citizenry. By the time of Appomattox, most Confederates simply considered him and his army the fullest expression of their national project, and thus his surrender marked the effective end of the conflict. It's not the end of the conflict. There are scores of thousands of Confederates under arms in many other places. Why should Appomattox be the end of the war? It's the end of the war because of the importance of Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. It's just that simple. Lee pursued the kind of aggressive action during the seven days best suited to satisfy the expectations of the Confederate people. His conduct during the campaign spawned confidence and won plaudits from many who previously had groused about what they considered his timid style of generalship. There's just like, it's a 180 degree shift. Read the Richmond newspapers in May and early June, then read them after the seven days. It's remarkable. Jefferson Davis reflected the attitude of most Confederates in observing that, quote, our success has been so remarkable that we should be grateful and believe that even our disappointments were ordered for our gain. McClellan's large army had been forced from its entrenchments by a less well-equipped Confederate force, had abandoned millions of dollars worth of supplies, and had given up on a campaign that had consumed months to plan and execute. The Richmond campaign also began the phenomenon of Confederates focusing progressively more on the Eastern theater, as I've already said, to determine the health of their cause. Lee had given them their first important victory in nearly a year, helping to erase uh, some of the sting from all those losses beyond the Appalachians in the Mississippi Valley, in Middle Tennessee, along the South Atlantic coast. Over the next year, Second Manassas, Fredericksburg, and Chancellorsville would spread the impression that all good news, from a Confederate perspective, emanated from the theater where Lee and his army operated. And of course, that was true. You have Chickamauga, that's the end of your list of great victories in the West. It does not, it's easy to remember. <laughs> Chickamauga. <laughs> and then there's the East. <laughs> Under these circumstances, and with the additional importance of Richmond as a psychological, industrial, and governmental colossus, it should come as little surprise to any of us in this room that the Confederate people fixed their hopes as well as their gaze on what was happening in the Commonwealth and what was happening with R.E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. So did the conflict significantly, was it significantly changed because of the seven days? I think I've tipped my hand here, uh, but I will repeat that my answer to that question is an emphatic yes. In terms of broad scale impact, the seven days campaign stands as one of the great turning points of the conflict far more important than Gettysburg or Gettysburg and Vicksburg combined. Uh, I know, I wish, I don't even know if Ed's here. I can't tell, Ed, Ed Ayers, Ed and I, I miss Ed in Charlottesville. That just, he's not coming back, but I'm just gonna tell you. <laughs> we haven't been having, I'm not an emissary from UVA to drag Ed back to the University of Virginia. But I miss our long coffees together when we talked about the Civil War and Ed's not comfortable with the term turning point. I'm perfectly comfortable with it, and the seven days is one, a really big one, a really big one. Although counterfactual speculation about what might have happened under different circumstances is tedious and usually pointless, Lee's rise to command, I believe, offers a clear exception. It's easy to imagine the war taking a very different path if Joseph Johnston had not been wounded at Seven Pines. I believe one of two things would have happened. Uh, sadly, he was almost out of room to retreat. 
But there was a little bit left. He still could have retreated into Richmond, which he would have done. And if there's one thing that Jorge McClellan could do, it was move slowly after a retreating opponent. Johnston moves back a step. McClellan moves forward a half step. But pretty soon, he's at Richmond, too. He can bring up his heavy guns. He can bring up all the mortars. We have pictures of them. He can ride around saying, how strong, how strong. And in the end, the outcome would be the same as the outcome of every major siege during the Civil War, and that is a catastrophic Confederate loss. This is the thing that R.E. Lee feared most throughout his campaigning in the Eastern Theater. He said it right after Chancellorsville. He said it to Jubal early in mid-June 1862. If it ever turns into a siege, it's going to end one way, with the surrender of the Confederate Army. And that is how it turned out when he finally was pushed into the Richmond-Petersburg lines in the summer of 1864. Johnston would have gotten there much sooner. <laughs> the campaign would have ended either with the surrender of the army defending Richmond or the abandonment of Richmond by Johnston. There is all the rest of that here. Just, I mean, think of the prospect of retreating all the way to Georgia. It just makes your head spin. <laughs> I don't think the Confederacy could have survived the loss of its capital in the summer of 1862 in combination with all of the bad news that had been coming from the West. What would there be left to cling to? You still would not have an army commander you really believed in. You would not have an army that had become what the army in Northern Virginia would become. I think the war would have ended in the summer of 1862. And of course, it would have ended without emancipation on the table. It would have ended with George B. McClellan as the great Union war hero. George McClellan did not believe in forced emancipation. He believed it was a state, it was a domestic institution. The states had to get rid of it. Uh, so it would have been a vastly different post-war landscape if the war had ended in the summer of 1862. Lee's successful defense of the city reversed a downward trend and virtually guaranteed a much longer and increasingly revolutionary struggle. As the armies watched each other below Richmond in July 1862, much of the campaign's impact already was apparent. Civilians and soldiers in the United States and the Confederacy could see the imprint of the campaign on political connections to military affairs, debates over war aims and policy, including emancipation, civilian morale and attitudes, the diplomatic front, and the command structure of the armies. Lee, as all of you know, immediately restructured the Army of Northern Virginia. He broke it into two big pieces rather than a gaggle of divisions. He couldn't have corps yet because they didn't have a rank suitable for corps commanders, but he broke it into wings and gave one wing to his senior subordinate Longstreet and one wing to his second-ranking subordinate Jackson and got rid of a number of the ineffective division commanders. Their names ring in Confederate history, Benjamin Eugee, John Bankhead Magruder, Theophilus Holmes. Uh, they all head west, way west. Uh, where it's safe to dump them. What should we do with him? How about Arkansas? <laughs> People at the time could only guess at some of the longer-term effects that stand out for us in retrospect. Modern students of the war should use our retrospective advantage to appreciate the full context within which the campaign was waged and the astonishing range of its short and longer-term consequences. Thank you. <clears throat> I, th I thought this was a beer when I first looked down there. It's not. I think we're... Ham? Quite questions. Oh, the floor's open for questions. It's not. <laughs> Thank you for the lecture. Appreciated it. Um, you uh, said you're comfortable with the word turning point, so I can use it, right? You know, just use away. Okay. <laughs> Uh, here we go. Um, y you say that uh, the Seven Days Battle, which I 
I tend to agree with, was a major turning point in the war. You tended to minimize, to a certain degree, uh, Gettysburg and Vicksburg, <laughs> but you, no, no, uh, okay. No, that, that's, that's understatement, obviously, yes. Okay, <laughs> but, okay, but you, you made a statement that, that kind of intrigued my interest, and you said there were other turning points, and I'm curious to hear what other turning points you would consider to be turning points of the war. Well, there are lots of turning points. Uh, I think that Antietam is a turning point. I don't think it's a more important turning point than the Seven Days, but it is a turning point. I don't think Antietam, for example, th the Seven Days had a seismic impact both in lowering United States morale and raising Confederate morale. Antietam did not lower Confederate morale the way that the Seven Days did Union morale. It's, it's a much murkier outcome, we tend to, to say that it must have been a, a devastating loss to the Confederates. The seven, the seven Days, Second Bull Run, and the Maryland Campaign, for many Confederates, are not broken down into three very distinct campaigns. We do that, so we can write books about each one of them that stand alone. <laughs> they tended to see them as the sprawling drama in three acts. The Seven Days is the opening act. It blunts the Union offensive against Richmond and in the end frees Lee up to pursue the second act, which reorients the war to north central Virginia and culminates in a second great victory at Second Bull Run, which in turn sets the stage for the third act, which carries the war into the United States and includes the surrender of more Americans than surrendered at any time in United States history until the fall of the Philippines in World War II, and that is the surrender of Harper's Ferry. That loomed very large to Confederates when they judged the efficacy of Lee's movement into Maryland. We tend to just, we talk about the casualties at Maryland and Lee retreated, but Lee only retreated across the Potomac. And so the overall result of this three-act drama from a Confederate perspective is it reorients the war from Richmond to the Potomac River and involves major Confederate victories. So we need to, I think, rethink uh, Antietam a little bit in that regard. I think that, that the fall of Atlanta is hugely important because of its political repercussions in the autumn of 1864. The real end for the Confederates, I mean, they didn't just give up after this, but for me, there's no realistic chance. There's no way to imagine Confederate independence after the elections of 1864. You have a Republican president and overwhelming Republican majorities in both the House and the Senate. So you know, and you have Grant and Lincoln in place, so you know the war is going to be pushed. And that's the end to me. Atlanta is extremely important. I think some very small battles are very important. I think Ball's Bluff is a turning point because it results in the creation of the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, which gave an intensely partisan political dimension to the Army of the Potomac especially and what went on in terms of judging generals uh, who operated in the Army of the Potomac. So I think there are a number. I don't think there is a turning point in the Civil War. I do I am perfectly willing to say I don't think there's a more important one in terms of overall impact on the broad sweep of the war than the 1862 Richmond campaign. I just don't think there is, uh, if, especially if you think emancipation's important because without what happened here, uh, emancipation wouldn't have come. The war wouldn't have gone on. If Lee's not in command of the army, without Lee as an army commander, I can't imagine the war is lasting that much longer. Lee is the essential factor in making the war a four-year war that was incredibly costly. Lee's the factor. The common denominator of where's the bloodshed is R.E. Lee. Grant's known as the butcher. Grant is not as bloody a general as R.E. Lee, not even close in terms of the percentage of his men shot. Grant's total casualties until he came to Virginia were 35,000 in all his great victories in the West, including Shiloh. Lee's casualties in the same period, 95,000. When did Grant get bloody? when he ran into Lee, the same point at which Hooker, Burnside, Meade, and everybody else got bloody when they ran into Lee. If you're around the Army in Northern Virginia, batten down the hatches. As Joe Glottauer's wonderful book on Lee's army, which is titled General Lee's Army, <laughs> instead of something like a magical force with a lot of impact and then a subtitle, you know what you're getting when you buy Joe's book. Of the men who served three years, Lee's full tenure in the Army in Northern Virginia, you had a 76% chance of becoming a casualty, 76%.
So you tell me who the bloodiest general of the Civil War is, it's Lee. But the fascinating thing is the Confederate people did not hold that against him because he delivered. The effusion of blood delivered victories and delivered hope. And Lee just simply, he, some people criticized him, but nothing like the way the Democrats in the United States criticized Grant, for example, very, very different. Number of turning points, seven days really an important one. Yes? What's the most important change you see in Lee that transformed him from a stick in the mud to a great general? <laughs> well, I don't think he was ever a stick in the mud. He was planning grandiosely in Western Virginia. He was working with some absolutely impossible subordinates there, uh, some of whom had been, dare I say it, politicians uh, at other times in their careers. I think he was trying to do too much with the material hand. He tried to do too much. I mean, he doesn't. The seven days are not a wonderful tactical uh, story for the Confederates. Lee also uh, bungled in many ways during the seven days. But the question of whether he's always aggressive, he is always aggressive. That is always his first inclination. It was in Western Virginia. It was throughout the war. Uh, what he, he he doesn't have his own army, for one thing, when he first takes over here in Richmond. What he is brilliant at, among many other things, is getting the people he wants in place, creating a culture of command in this institution that is the Army of Northern Virginia, and it's a culture that worked perfectly with Lee's hand at the helm, and especially worked perfectly when his original triumvirate of key lieutenants were in place. That is, Longstreet and Jackson each commanding half the infantry, Longstreet a little more than half, and Jeb Stuart commanding the cavalry. When that command team is in place, which is for 11 months down through Chancellorsville, it's, uh, it's an astonishing story. Uh, the command begins to break down, just as the Union command did uh, in the Army of the Potomac, the Overland Campaign, Gettysburg and the Overland Campaign. Lee lost a third of his generals in each of those campaigns. Uh, so the command structure fractures later. But he, when he molds the army into what he wants it to be, and it's a rough process for the army in Northern Virginia. There's huge desertion, as you know, on the way to Maryland in 1862. The soldiers weren't quite ready for what they got with Lee. What they got was, a, was, was just piles of casualties. It took them a while to bond with him. That process is well along. By the time of Fredericksburg, it's solidified, I believe, at Chancellorsville, and the morning of May the 3rd in the Chancellorsville clearing, uh, where Lee rides into the midst of his infantry who fought their, the two wings, fought their way together against much larger Union forces that morning. And there's this incredible epiphany, both on Lee's part and his soldiers' part. I think you can actually point to that moment. That is the moment at which this bonding process reached fruition. And it was unshakable from then on, absolutely unshakable. Uh, there's nothing comparable on the United States side. There's love for McClellan. Sherman soldiers, they loved Sherman too. Uncle Billy, uh, nicknames tell a lot. Marsh Robert, Uncle Billy. U.S. Grant doesn't have a nickname like that. He doesn't. And, and, I, don't, and I just won't countenance snickering about Grant. Grant is a great soldier, but he doesn't have that kind of nickname. Uh, so it's, a, it's, Lee's a, it's, they're intangibles that you can't just say this is, this is why he was successful. But I think he combined both tremendous military knowledge and skill with great personnel skills or whatever we want to call them. He's a great, and he's also an absolutely superb military politician. He handles Jefferson Davis beautifully. Uh, and Grant and Lincoln got along beautifully. Lee and Davis got along beautifully. McClellan and Lincoln, Johnston and Davis, uh, it's just Lee understood that. He reminds me of Eisenhower in some ways there. And, and he has all these prickly lieutenants. How would you like to wake up and know A.P. Hill was in your army every day? <laughs> What's the question there? OK, let's see. He couldn't get along with Longstreet, so I'll put him under. Oh, he can't get along with Jackson. He can't. And Jackson can't get along with anybody. <laughs> but Lee managed them. He managed them. And he moves people out seamlessly. They're just gone. There, where's D.H. Hill? He used to be a division commander in the Army of Northern Virginia, and now he's gone. In the Army of Tennessee, there's blood on the walls. There are headlines in the paper. Jefferson Davis has to get on a train, for God's sake, and go to North Georgia. 
to try to straighten things out. That's unthinkable in the Army in Northern Virginia. Absolutely unthinkable. You have your hand up. There's a question over there, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I've got a question. Um, like talking this. about turning points, what do you think the turning point was in the seven days? Do you think McClellan lost his nerve when he learned that Jackson, with all his victories, was on his flank, even though Jackson was too tired to do anything effective? Boy, that's a, you, you let Jackson off the hook just like that. <laughs> what about Jackson? Oh, he was really tired. He was tired. <laughs> John Bankhead Magruder was really tired, too, and no one let him off the hook. I think that McClellan, I, I think that McClellan, who quite perceptively announced when he found out Lee was in command that it was, you know, Lee was pretty good at some things, but he was just too cautious uh, to be a good general. Uh, I think he was surprised at the aggressiveness of Lee, and I think he made the switch. I think by the, by the time of Gaines's Mill, it's over with. He's thinking about one thing after Gaines's Mill, and that's getting across to the James, where he can hunker down with the U.S. Navy behind him uh, and not worry about things. I think all offensive thoughts are gone at the very latest after Gaines's Mill. And Gaines's Mill, of course, is a huge battle. Gaines's Mill is a standalone battle, is a big battle, the biggest of the seven days by a wide margin, as you know. That's a big battle, and I think uh, I would say at the latest, that's when McClellan all he's thinking about is saving himself, saving himself. I, it's, it's, you'll, you can read all of Lee's letters from the war and not find that kind of sentiment. Uh, it's just an interesting, it's an interesting phenomenon. One final question. Okay, Professor, a what if question. What if U.S. Grant had been the commanding general instead of McClellan? Where, during the seven days? Yes, sir. Oh, well, I think it would have been bad news for the Confederates. But, of course, the U.S. grant of June 1862 is not the U.S. grant of later. So that's something. Lee of, of June 1862 isn't the Lee of May 1863. So what would the, the grant of Shiloh do here? Grant didn't have the, the thing that Grant's strength at Shiloh was that he didn't panic. He was unflappable, as we all know. And Don Carlos Buell came in time. I mean, Shiloh was a near thing for Grant, and he was very widely criticized for it at the time. Uh, we, uh, Dave reads about Shiloh with every waking moment he has, that he's not, <laughs> he's not working on the Richmond battlefield, and he could talk more about Grant at Shiloh. That Grant, I still think, probably would have prevailed. I'm not absolutely certain. If Johnston had not been wounded, I know he would have, because even McClellan would have. But I think, <laughs> I think Grant would not have been stampeded. He would not. His first thought would not have been, how can I retreat? Because that was never his first thought, not at any point in the war, not from Belmont forward. His first thought was always, okay, this happened, that happened, that's too bad. He pushes it out of his mind, and let's do the next thing. Let's do the next thing. He's a quarterback. The last interception would not have bothered U.S. Grant. He would have come out thinking, okay, the next one is going to work. The next one's going to work. Lee's the same way. McClellan comes out thinking, how many defensive backs do they have? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Thank you.